0: We are presently working our way through the last book of the Bible, and we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 20, if you'd like to turn there. Our theme is Camelot, not just a fairy tale. Now let's join Dave as he attempts to help us understand the messianic expectations of the first century Jewish people, and wrestles with the question, what kind of a messiah Do we really need Dave? To enter into how first century Jews felt, you've got to put yourself back and think of being an enslaved people. Because they were an enslaved people, the promise of the kingdom, the promise of the kingdom from the Old Testament was not something they argued about at Dallas Seminary or at Trinity Seminary or at Fuller. In our day in Christendom, we argue about whether the kingdom's going to come, whether it's raining now, how long it's going to last, whether the Messiah's going to come before the tribulation period in the middle or three-quarters of the way through or at the end. We argue about all that stuff academically. And we even argue about it in our churches. But in order to know what it was like in the first century, it was living stuff. They went to war. I want you to know that some of the Jews decided... In fact, about 6 AD, soon after Jesus was born, there was a a great Jewish leader that rose up from Galilee, from the area where Jesus was raised as a kid. And this great Jewish leader called for the Jews to throw off the yoke of Rome and to not pay taxes. They mounted a, a revolt and the Romans crushed it down. I want you to know that in 67 A.D., you know, after Jesus was crucified, and in 67 A.D., the zealots, again from Galilee, centered in Galilee, rose up, and they preached that the kingdom of God was coming. They preached that the kingdom of God was alive, that it was powerful, and that if they would only take the sword, that God would work a great miracle, and he'd conquer the Romans, and they could have all the promises of the Messiah. All the promises from the book of Isaiah and the book of Psalms, all those promises would be fulfilled. The kingdom dream was really alive in the first century. We know that from the New Testament. We know that from the Jewish rabbis. We know it from the Roman sources, that the Romans, like Tacitus, recount the history of the first century. The book of Revelation was written about 93 or 94. I want you to know that in 130 A.D., just about 35, 40 years after the book of Revelation was written, there was a Jewish rabbi named Rabbi Akiba, and Rabbi Akiba announced that Bar Kokhba, the son of the star, this great Jewish military leader, was the Messiah. And that if all the people of Israel would unite powerfully behind him, that they could conquer the Roman Empire. And again, the Jews, even after the destruction of Jerusalem, even after the people had been scattered, again in 130 through about 132, the Jews again revolted against Rome. Why did they revolt? Because they had these incredible promises from the Old Testament that there was going to be a great king that would come. He would rule from Jerusalem. He would send up a universal kingdom of peace. Now, where did they get that from? Let me just read and just listen. Don't try to turn, but I just want you to listen to these texts and I want you to feel what first century Jews would have felt as they heard these promises. For example, Isaiah chapter 2 goes like this. This is what Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. In other words, the temple in Jerusalem, the idea of a mountain in the ancient world, was the ruling authority, the ruling political entity that was was over all the world. What Isaiah was predicting, there would come a time when Jerusalem's political power would be raised above all the other nations. All the peoples will say, come, let us go to the mount of the Lord. In other words, come, let us go to Jerusalem let us go to the house of Jacob there God will teach us his ways so that we may walk in all of his paths the laws will go forth from Zion the word of the Lord will go forth from Jerusalem he the Lord will judge between the nations he will set up the disputes for many people they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks nation will not take up sword against nation nor will they train themselves for war anymore Come, O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What was their dream? The first century Jew, as long as with Jews for hundreds of years before that, dreamed of a kingdom. Of a kingdom where the Lord himself would reign from the city of Jerusalem. And all the disputes among the nations would be settled by appealing to that ultimate center of power in the world. They believed that they would possess their land just like the lord promised to abraham they believed that all the nations of the world would make annual pilgrimages that was their dream and it was a living dream to them at christmas time we often read isaiah chapter 11 and we read about the coming of the great king that's going to rule and remember isaiah 11 it says the spirit of the lord will rest on him this is the great messianic davidic king The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel, of power, the spirit of knowledge, the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. This Messiah will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. That's exactly what we just read in the book of Revelation when we studied Revelation 19 and we saw the vision. Remember the holy, political, sacred cartoon of the great white horseman and had the sword coming out of his mouth. John is just building on exactly what Isaiah predicted would come. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the sword of his mouth. It's the same kind of imagery the old testament prophets we could go to uh, jeremiah jeremiah chapter 23 verses 5 through 8 the days are coming declares the lord when i will raise up to david a righteous branch a king who will reign wisely who will do justice and what is right for in his days judah will be saved and israel will live in safety This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteousness. We could go on and on. You can go to the book of of Ezekiel. It talks about, my servant David will be king over them. And they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land. I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children, their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 talked about the stone cut out without hands and the the son of man that would receive the kingdom. Lest you think that this is just dead stuff, this is what the argument is over right now as the Palestinians and the Israelis argue over the land. There's groups in Israel that believe we have the right to occupy our land. Very Orthodox Jews live right in the heart of Palestinian country, right in the heart of Samaria, right in the heart of the part of the land that they're arguing about giving to the Palestinians. All this debate that's going on. And those Jews would argue, we've been given this land by God, and we, just exactly like the first century zealots, we're ready to fight for it. Americans, we live in a politically correct arena where we hold that there's a big separation between what you believe religiously and spiritually and what you believe in public. In other words, public policy is not influenced at all by your spiritual beliefs. What I want to know is that that's just not true. It's not the way human beings are. Your deepest longings, your deepest desires, the things that you're ready to live and die for have to do with spiritual realities deep in your soul. The big question that John was wrestling with in Revelation chapter 20 is, is there ever going to come a time when the Lord will fulfill his promise to Israel? And what I wanted to give you a taste for today is that that's still very much a live option. Now those Jews that are ready to fight for their land are just like the zealots that Jesus had to constantly appeal to them and say, we're not going to accomplish this. We're not going to win the victory by taking the sword. You need to let me work in your heart. You need to let me change your attitude. You need to help me help you to love Romans. Which the zealots, were they would crucify Jesus for that. That's why the crowd yelled, crucify him, crucify him. Jesus, when he lived here on earth, was living with really powerful, powerful influences. And those influences are still very much upon the world today. Now, Jesus, instead of instituting his kingdom here on earth in Jerusalem... In his first coming, he instituted a spiritual kingdom. He instituted a kingdom that would be born in our hearts. He instituted a church that would reach out into all the world and it would be Jews and Gentiles and everybody united together under the forgiveness of Calvary and the the great wonder of the gift of eternal life and knowing that when we die, we would go to live with him. That's the kingdom we live for today. And when you die, you will instantaneously be transported, be after from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Your kingdom dream as a believer will not end when you die physically, because just like that, you're going to find out that the spiritual kingdom, rather than just being some ethereal, floaty, kind of a see-through kind of a thing that doesn't really have any substance to it, you're going to find out that when you die and you're with the Lord, that you're really in reality that you found what's really true and what's going to last forever and ever. And we need to help each other to believe that. That's the hard thing. That's the tough question of living the life of faith. Will we put more belief in the Word of God or more belief in what we see and what we can handle and what we can taste? And that's the great gift to the church. We are having given a kingdom that's in our heart. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God's within you. Now, many believers down through the century, really, especially since the age of Augustine in the third century, Augustine taught that the kingdom was within us and it was a spiritual kingdom and that it started with Jesus ascending to heaven. And so Augustine taught the church that there will never be a literal kingdom for the Jews on earth. The God's finished with the Jews, and the Jews relate to him by just believing in his son, and they don't have any more future than the Gentiles because all those kingdom promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled now in the church through the body of Christ. And that's a big question for ever since Augustine. They've been arguing back and forth is there a future for the promises to Israel made in the Old Testament? I believe strongly. That based upon the credibility of God, that God has to fulfill his promise. The verses that I just read, the verses that I just read, if you were a first century Jew, like if you were one of the disciples in Acts chapter 1 and you said, Jesus, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the time of the seasons, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and your job is to evangelize the world. When the disciples asked Jesus about the coming of the kingdom, Jesus and the disciples both knew what they were talking about. It was the Old Testament prophetic kingdom, the image of Daniel 2 where the great Son of Man came and he smashed the nations of the world. And he set up his powerful kingdom on planet Earth. What Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, if there was just going to be a spiritual kingdom, all Jesus needed to say at that point was, No, Peter... We're not going to institute the kingdom that you're thinking of. All we're going to do is have a spiritual kingdom, and the spiritual influence of the body of Christ is going to permeate the world, and all of those promises that you've been counting on as a Jewish boy are forgotten because I'm going to fulfill them in a different way. Jesus could have talked like that, but he didn't. He never told Peter, I'm not going to institute the kind of a kingdom you talked about. He just said, it's not for you to know when I'm going to do it. When you open up the pages of the book of Revelation, Revelation, again, doesn't answer the question of when I'm going to do it. But it does make it really clear that God's not finished with planet Earth. That he's not just going to have things roll along and then have just a great general coming. In other words, we're moving towards a great crisis on planet Earth that's rooted in the theology of Genesis chapter 1, which teaches us, let man rule over the fisher of the sea and over the birds of the air and over everything that crawls upon the earth. In other words, God created Adam, he created man to rule. And that's been this big struggle down through time. Ever since man rebelled against God, he tries to rule illegitimately. That's why there's a great big power struggle on planet Earth. And what this, the book of Revelation is showing us is that there's going to be a great culmination right here on Earth. And the reason there has to be a culmination here on Earth is because man fell on planet earth, the earth has been polluted by sin, mankind rejected the Son of Man, rejected God, and yet it's going to be all the pieces are going to be tied together. You see, the covenant God of Israel, what Israel reasoned was, our God made a covenant with us, that if we believed him, if we trusted him, if we obeyed his laws, that he would institute his kingdom on earth. We have disobeyed him, we've rebelled against him, Therefore, we've been thrown to exile. We've been cast all across the nations of the world. But if we repent, the prophets always said, but if we repent then God will bring us back to the land. It was promised way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30. If you repent, if you have a change of heart, and the prophets predicted there would come a time in Israel when they would have a change of heart, when they would respond to God's promises, and based upon the covenant faithfulness of God, he's going to fulfill that just like he promised here on this planet. That's what the millennial kingdom is all about. Lots of people say, like, why in the world? You know, why can't we just be us in heaven? Why do we have to think about ruling and reigning for a thousand years on earth? It's because this earth is important to God. This earth was his place. It was created by him. He made promises to his people about their land. And you can't just spiritualize all that. You can't just shuffle that in to the area of the ethereal and the non-material. In fact, that's one of the things that people are always trying to do. God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus took a human body. It's very important to us. We don't just worship an idea. We don't just worship a symbol. If you were here 2,000 years ago, you could have gone by the shores of Galilee and seen Jesus. And I want you to be very careful in your Christian life not to just spiritualize everything. It's very important, like in the movies... There's ethereal, spiritual world. You're able to look in the future and you're able to to see your future and what it's going to be like when you're old. And you can have all these movies like in Ghost and everything where you have all these dead people that come back. Like in the sixth sense, you have dead people that who knows whether they're dead or alive. Some people can see them, some can't not. You've got all this ethereal, spiritual world. That is paganism. That is paganism. That's what Jesus came to this world to deliver us from. Jesus said, no, the ultimate eternal God is not just some power. He's not just some ethereal spirit, but he is God the Father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, the God who promised to send his Messiah, the God who sent his Messiah into this world, who took flesh like we have, and he went into a real grave, and he came out of a real grave, and he he didn't just come out as some ethereal light. He didn't just come out blending with the great spirit. He came out with a body that could eat, that could be touched, that people could hug it again. It's very important for you to understand that. I want you to know that I believe that I'm going to be able to grab a hold of Al Bauckham again. I'm going to be able to feel him and touch him and talk to him and he's going to be real. It's very important if you understand that. And you guys, big millions of dollars are being spent. To communicate to an American culture and to a world culture. You never get away from the spiritual battle. And I don't want you to be naive. I work with tons of unbelievers that believe, oh yeah, there's nothing to worry about. There's just some great light and I'm going to float out of my body and I'll be hovering up there and I'll be just some light. And, and what, who cares You know, whether I believe in Jesus just as long as I'm kind of a good person. That totally ignores what's going on in their heart. Totally ignores the evil, the rebellion, the immorality. The anger against God. Even the refusal to listen to what God said. And it's so important for us to be clear on this. And what I want you to know is that I worship a God who keeps his promises. And he said I'm going to send the Messiah. to you open up to Revelation chapter 20, what is happening is that God is saying now is the time when I'm going to do on planet earth what I promised the prophets that I would do. And I'm going to set up a kingdom on planet earth And we have the binding of Satan in order for this kingdom to be established. We must have Satan, the one that's been opposing God down through the centuries. We must have him bound. So we begin reading in Revelation chapter 20. It says, then I saw another angel. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. So we have another vision. John sees this messenger of God coming down. He has the key to the abyss. The abyss is the place where Satan dwells. It's viewed as like a bottomless pit. And sin is always a bottomless pit. And this is the place, it's kind of like a holding tank. It's not the final place, but it's like a holding tank. It's like a prison house for the evil one, for demons. Earlier in the book, we had some demonic spirits that were released from the abyss. They came up out of the abyss, and they'd been imprisoned there. Now, whatever that means in the spiritual realm, you know, I don't know. But what I do know is that in reality, what it means is that their influence on planet Earth is curtailed. They're not able to come and talk to our minds and deceive us and and lead us into sin and to tempt us. Like, it's often going on in our lives day by day. So the abyss is the place that will remove this satanic influence from being able to do something on planet Earth. It says that he's holding in his hand a great chain, which would symbolize that he's going to take the dragon, he's going to take Satan, and just like a a policeman would incarcerate a prisoner and would handcuff him, that would be the modern equivalent. We're going to handcuff Satan. Only in the ancient world they would use big chains to do that and totally incapacitate the person. It says the angel seized the dragon. He took him into custody. I love this. Here's, here's the dragon. He's strutting his stuff. He's been trying to influence your life, trying to deceive you. He gets some of you to fall into sin, and, and man, you wander away from God, but the champion Jesus comes after you, and you come back. What Revelation's saying is don't ever sell your soul to Satan. Don't follow that Faustian dream. Don't ever sell your soul to the power of Satan. This is the power of Satan. The Lord doesn't even do battle with Satan himself in this context. He sends one of his messengers. The theologian is trying to help you to realize, hey, this is the Son of God that's arrived on planet Earth. The King of Kings has come. Just send one of my angels. Put a big chain, a big spiritual chain. Just incarcerate, take Satan, bind him. It doesn't even present that Jesus has even a personal audience with him. He just gets one of his servants to do it. It's why you don't want to ever get involved in the worship of the evil one and to think that, that Satan's the one with the power because this is genuine spiritual truth. God can bind Satan with just one of his servants when that servant is given the authority from the, from the great one, from God. So he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil. It just loads all the different titles. The dragon reminds us of Revelation 12. The ancient serpent reminds us of the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. The devil reminds us that he is um, a slanderer, someone that tells lies about us. And he is Satan. The word Satan means he's the great adversary. So he's the dragon. He's the serpent from the Garden of Eden. He is the slanderer that's been accusing mankind, and he's the adversary. And he was bound for a 1,000 years. I believe in the book of Daniel, it tells us that we're going to have a tribulation period for 42 months. It tells us exactly how many days that is, which equals three and a half years. The book of Daniel closes by saying blessed are those that live for the three and a half years and then they make it for another period, about 40 days or so. Very concrete. I don't see any reason. Lots and lots of believers down through the centuries have taught, well, it's all symbolic. And it's possible, maybe it is, but I don't see any reason. All the numbers that I've read in the book of Daniel... For example, Daniel predicted that Antiochus Epiphanes was going to have such and such a period of time. And by the way, Antiochus Epiphanes was trying to shake Israel for about three and a half years. 64 to 67, that period. And it was a literal period. It's interesting to me that almost all world wars have, they relatively move around. The intense period of conflict is almost always about three and a half, four years. The great world wars, about four years, intense conflict. And maybe that's the duration of the evil one's ability to produce that kind of violence. And before the great grace of God and the mercies of God is poured forth. But I don't see any reason when God says that he will be bound for a thousand years to make it. Well, you know, that's some indeterminate period. To me, the straightforward reading of the text is like I'm looking forward to a day and Israel right now is living in a land with a hard heart. It doesn't mean that they should be able to possess all the land right now because they haven't returned to their Messiah. So it's very important. Like if you were a diplomat, you would need to work hard and try to bring about justice and and be sure that there's fairness. And you need to try to take care of little children, for example, in the Gaza Strip that are just living in rank poverty with disease. As a believer, you would need to care about all those things. So it doesn't mean that there can't be some temporary resolutions. But I want you to know, That Revelation saying that there's going to come a time when the heart of the Israeli will be connected with Yeshua, with Jesus. And right now, that's as far away as it could ever seem in many ways. Mary and I heard from a Jew again this week, just cursing Jesus, rejecting the Messiah. We heard about the animosity he has, because we have the audacity, and some of his friends have the audacity, of believing that he needs to believe in Yeshua. How could we ever believe that? How could we ever think that? So the animosity is still there. But I am so encouraged today because I know there's going to come a day when God changes the heart of Israel and the evil one will be bound and God will send his son Jesus and he will begin to rule over Jerusalem. It says that he threw him into the abyss and locked him and sealed it over and kept him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time, and that's to reveal the heart of man that even after a thousand years of perfect reign, perfect righteousness, perfect justice, the heart of man is still bent towards evil. And the children of the righteous ones that begin the millennial kingdom, a thousand years you can generate a whole new population, the children of the original godly people that really believed in the Son of God. Just like happens in our families today. One generation can really be hot for God. The next generation can be turning away from Him. Because God doesn't have any grandchildren. What the millennial kingdom showed, that even after a thousand years of perfect reign, the heart of man, as soon as the adversary is let loose, he's able to deceive. The application I want you to understand today, I believe, according to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, that Satan right now is going around as a roaring lion. Seeking those who may deceive. One of my greatest burdens as a pastor is to watch some of you stray. To watch some of you take yourself out from under under the teaching of the word of God. To watch some of you just kind of wander with your family, wander in your life. You're not really acknowledging Jesus as Lord. You're just kind of living who knows what. And what I want you to know is that you will be deceived... You will be deceived. Right now we're living in a period where the Satan is like a roaring lion. You don't mess with a lion. During the tribulation period, that influence will be removed. But First Peter said that during the church age, when Peter was writing in, in 1 Peter, it was the age we're living in. And Paul talks about Satan being an angel of light that even comes into a church family and tries to generate false teaching, even through leadership, and tries to generate anti-biblical thinking. You say, well, Dave, how can I be free from the deception of the evil one? By keeping focused on the king, by keeping focused on Jesus, your heart was built to adore, to praise, to thank. When you adore and you praise and you thank other things than Jesus, then you fall into deception, and I fall into the deception. And one of the things we can learn from this pageant in Revelation 20 is the deception can be incredibly powerful. All the nations are going to be deceived. And that's happening right now in the world. I've tried to show you as we studied the history of World War II, that a lot of the deception that's propagated and exposed to us in the book of Revelation, what the Antichrist is going to do, what the false prophet is going to do, I tried to give you a feel like it's already happened in the lifetime of some of my brothers and sisters here that fought World War II. The entire world got caught up in great deception. Great worship of materialism. Great worship of power. And I want you not to be naive. Don't think that that deception is not going to continue. And say, well, Dave, what can we do about it? What we need to do about it is to proclaim the good news about Jesus. In the church, we don't grab the sword. We don't grab the power structures. What we do during the church age is we go and make disciples of every nation and we pray for the Spirit to produce great movements of the Spirit so that there can be great times of grace and times of engathering into the family of God. But we never naively convince ourselves like the rebels of the first century Judaism believed we can bring the kingdom of God in by the force of our arms. So if you go into into parties, political parties, don't play the power game. Don't start to think we can turn this thing around by using power and by using the influence that we have. And if we have to lie, we have to cheat, if we have to slander. The end justifies the means. That's falling prey to the deceitfulness of the evil one. The only way that we can really, really change people is to not be deceived by the evil one, not use his tactics, but instead we're fully devoted followers of Jesus. And so if, if the enemy was able to deceive the nations and generate the tribulation period, if at the end of a thousand-year reign he's going to be able to deceive the nations again, it needs to put us on our guard. You are not living in neutral territory. Every place you go, every educational system you become a part of, every company that you're involved in, the spiritual struggle is constantly going on. And I don't want you to feel that you're going to be defeated or not. But I want you to be wise. You're to be wise as serpents, but harmless as a dove. And I want you to think clearly. I want you to think clearly about spiritual things. I want you to think clearly about who Jesus is. I want you to be fully devoted to him. Otherwise, you'll fall victim to the terrible lies of this adversary, this dragon. And why fall prey to him when Revelation 20 has already described how he's going to be seized and bound and his activity is going to be curtailed? It tells us here that I saw thrones that were set up. It says, I saw thrones in verse 4 that were set up and those who had been given authority to judge. That's you, I believe. I believe it's you. I think it's Daniel. Paul told Corinthians that they would even judge angels. In the book of 1 Peter, it says that you are a kingdom of priests. This book began... By saying, it, talk to you who have been bought with the blood of Jesus. And it says, God has made you a kingdom. In the introduction of the Revelation, we studied that those who have been bought with the blood of Jesus have been made a kingdom. This is the kingdom that he closes with. And then it flows into the eternal kingdom. You've been made a kingdom. You've been made priests. So you might be sitting here today trying to figure out how you're ever going to pay your bills. How you're ever going to make it through another week. But I want God news for you you've got a great destiny ahead. You can hold your head high because of the grace of Jesus. You don't have to go into any power structure on planet Earth and be intimidated if you'll really believe this. It says that you are going to be the kingdom of God. You're going to be ruling and reigning with Him. I saw thrones that were seated on and those seated on them were given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. It says they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. If you were a facing Antichrist, a Jewish believer that it, had that it just had your heart turned on and you responded to the Messiah, so you became a follower of Jesus, and then you got your head cut off from Antichrist henchmen, just like the Jews were incinerated in the Holocaust, Kind of a tribulation holocaust. How would you feel? You'd feel like, man, where's the justice? That's the big issue we've been wrestling with for the last several chapters. Revelation 20 resolves that. It says you've been beheaded for the cause of Christ. You're going to raise a head. God puts your head back on, gives you a brand new body that's going to last forever and ever. And he makes you a ruler over the very world that you didn't get to live in. You think that doesn't have reality to it? Some of you have big questions in your life. We've had little babies that were born, still born in our church family. Where's the justice in that? Where's the God of mercy and grace? We have little children that are born with diseases where they're just not going to be able to live very long. And sometimes God heals them. But sometimes he takes them home. We live in a church family where the Lord really raises one of our numbers up and does a mighty healing. And we rejoice as we see a glimpse of the kingdom of God. We have someone else who languishes in disease. Where's the justice in that? The millennial kingdom, God is promising there's going to be justice. A precious wife lost her husband, believed in Christ, got his head cut off. The horrible, what could be more gruesome than that? In the millennial kingdom, Jesus will take that wife, put his arm around her, and say, hey, I want you to meet somebody. And bring her husband back and say, gather into each other's arms. you got a thousand years, and that's only just the beginning. That's what Jesus does. Jesus is the only one that can resolve. He'll take little babies. Some of you that have lost little babies. And suddenly you'll have a running child come up into your arms and says, Here I am. The Savior's been keeping me for you. And now you can enjoy. We can enjoy. We can be loved again and enjoy each other's company again. Some of you lost older relatives. I mentioned Al. Horrible, unresolved injustice. Terrible injustice. A friend that helped found our church, build our church. A wise counselor in so many ways kept Mary and I going in the early days of our church. And we spent the last few years of his life with him not even knowing who we are. Where's the justice in that? That doesn't honor Jesus. That doesn't glorify Jesus. But you know what? I've got a great hope. There's a millennial kingdom coming. And one day I'm going to go in the millennial kingdom and, and man... Al's not going to be county commissioner of just some old little Ellis County. Man, he's going to be commissioner of who knows what. That's what the millennial promise is all about. That's why this, these, these verses were so precious to believers. It's why you must not just spiritualize it all and put it in some ethereal realm, which I know in my own life theologically, when I do that, it takes one step away from reality. And just to be really honest with you, as a theologian... What I'm doing then is I'm wrestling with my unbelief. I start to have problem believing stuff could really happen here on planet Earth. And if you have trouble believing that the millennial kingdom could happen on planet Earth, then if I'm really consistent in my thinking, I'm probably gonna have trouble with a baby being born a virgin and of a marvelous Savior healing the blind and raising the dead and making cripples walk, and I probably have a really big problem with the empty tomb because probably it was all just spiritual. The body was really there but the spiritual realities, the spiritual ideals just kept on going. The very fact that Jesus rose again in the body and left the grave clothes behind argues for his culminating kingdom which will be a real kingdom on planet earth. But I have precious believing friends who don't believe in the 1000 year reign of Christ. They believe with all their hearts that Jesus died for them. They believe with all their hearts that Jesus is coming back again. They just don't look at it the way I do. And I want you as a church family not to think of them as non-brethren. I don't want you to think of them as being out of the family. I've tried to share with you from my heart why I believe that Revelation 20 says literally, Jesus will come and he will reign. And when I go to the city of Jerusalem and I'm by the willing wall and I look up, a little bit to my east, and I look up on that thing and I see the Dome of the Rock. I dream of a day when there's going to be a new temple there. And Jesus is going to be ruling from his throne. And there's going to be peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And it's going to be Christmas time for a thousand years. And that's why I love him today. Because that's just the beginning. Because that thousand years just ushers in eternity for those that take part in the, first, in the first resurrection. It mentions here, and we're gonna, we'll get into that next week, but I want you to be very sure it mentions that this is the first resurrection. And this is the resurrection that all of you want to be sure that you have a part in. You see, there's kind of phases in this first resurrection. I believe there is the rapture at the beginning of the tribulation period. That's the first phase of the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous. Then there's the resurrection of Daniel and all the Old Testament saints before Jesus institutes his millennial kingdom. There's also the resurrection of all the believers during the tribulation period that lost their lives. You have some believers in Jesus that believe in the Messiah that enter the millennium in their earthly bodies and they live unbelievably long lives. And then they die and then they're given a resurrected body. That's all part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection takes place at the end of the millennium. When the, the earth is destroyed and God creates a new heaven, new earth, and before he creates a new heaven, new earth, there's a great white throne judgment, which is where we are in the book of Revelation. And I want every one of you to be very sure that you're not going to face that second resurrection. You see, everybody on planet earth gets resurrected. Everybody. Everybody rises. The issue is, will I rise to live forever with Jesus? Or to forever to be separated from him and to live with the Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist. That's what Revelation is spelling out to us. And it says that there's no reason for any of us to not take part in the first resurrection. I've said it to you a million times, but I say it to you again. Be sure that you've nailed down that commitment to Jesus. That there's been a time in your life where you have devoted yourself... To what he did for you on the cross. What he did for you in the resurrection. And you have invited him to come inside your life. Because then you never need to fear the second death. Because you'll only have a physical death. And then you're going to rise again. To enjoy all the beauty of the millennium. And all the beauty of eternity. Revelation. Serious stuff. I don't want any one of you to miss out. On the wonders of the millennial kingdom. Let's pray. Lord. Jesus shall reign. Forever and ever and ever. We thank you that he's begun to reign in heaven today. That he is sitting at your right hand. That Stephen saw him standing at the, your right hand, ready to welcome him home to glory. We thank you that you reign in our hearts. We thank you for this special time of the spiritual movement of your kingdom throughout the world and the body of Christ. But we thank you that there's also going to come a physical manifestation I thank you that you're not going to just let your Jewish people go. I thank you that there's a great future for them. That you're going to have many of them respond to your Messiah, Jesus. Help us to be part of that movement today as we try to reach them for Christ. Even in the midst of a society that, that will spurn us for even mentioning a thing like that. Father, I'd ask you, Lord, that we would read Revelation 20, that we would... We would look forward to the incredible time when this earth will be healed, when the curse will be removed, and we will be able to see what it means for you truly to be the king of planet earth. Today, Lord, I pray that we'll let you be the king of our lives, that we will truly bow before you, we will truly obey you, and because of that, we will become a great influence so that many of our friends and many of those that we meet will join us in that great millennial kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.